Welcome back to the Plowcast. I'm Peter Momsen, Editor-in-Chief at Plow. And I'm Susanna Black-Roberts, Senior Editor at Plow. Today we'll be talking with Michael Sacasas about technology, human beings, and how things can go wrong between them. And then we'll be taking your questions. Michael Sacasas, who is at LM Sacasas on Twitter, is a commentator focusing on technology and culture and the author of the Convivial Society newsletter. You can go to his Twitter page to subscribe. How did you come to this interest in technology? Is it, how, is it what you started writing about and what have your major influences been? So my interest in technology uh, probably dates back to um, a, a class I took in a seminary when I was doing a uh, MA in, in theological studies. And we read a book by a sociologist named Craig Gay, and it explored the ways that um, we are shaped not just by what we think uh, or our expressed beliefs, but by the uh, social structures, essentially. Uh, some of them economic, some of them uh, scientific or technological. And so that uh, kind of awakened my interest in understanding the way in which technology would shape me or shape society. Uh, in, in the interest, of course, of trying to, to live the kind of life that I would want to live um, or have the kind of family I would want to have or promote the kind of community I would want to uh, promote. And so recognizing that, that technology was not just a neutral tool that came alongside of me and helped me do the things that I explicitly wanted to do with it, but rather that it often um, had undercurrents that were uh, sometimes veiled from, from our awareness and were in that way, subtly shaping, uh, technology was subtly shaping uh, what I did, how I thought, uh, how I perceived the world, how I interacted with others. Uh, that became, that was just a fascinating uh, realization for me. And so from, from that point forward, uh, that became, I, I would say, just um, a preoccupation, right? So, and I began writing about it a little bit later uh, in conjunction with wh- when I was in grad school pursuing a, a PhD degree in uh, what amounts to digital humanities, but my own interests were more along the lines of sort of the ethics or philosophy of technology. And and I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed thinking through these questions. Uh, I, I often think of it as thinking out loud through these questions uh, and in conversation with um, uh, a set of earlier technology theorists or, or critics. Um, Jacques Ellul and Ivan Illich are probably the most prominent among those that have been very influential in shaping the way that I approach these questions. And, and I find that bringing their, um, some might say it's a dated perspective, but I, I would say that, you know, for that reason, uh, it actually gives us very interesting um, angles on, on contemporary issues. And, and much of what they write is, um, I think, still deeply relevant and, and their concern for, for the human person um, is uh, certainly, you know, I think very, still very valuable. Yeah. The questions that you um, seem to continue to return to are things about the way that technology shapes us as its users um, that are kind of unintentional. There's a kind of um, parallel set of questions that you're less sort of directly concerned with, but uh, that other people are um, in the same space are concerned with more. And that's kind of like um, terrifying ways of understanding what AI might do or might become. the you know w- ways that sort of things that I sort of think of as the Scott Alexander um, set set of questions, and I wonder I I'm not sure that I've ever seen you write directly directly on those questions. What are your thoughts about things like this guy at Google who says that he found a sentient AI among the code? What do you think of this? How should we think of this? How what are our resources as Christians for understanding these things? Etc. You're right to note that I, I don't often address these questions head on, um, unless it is in, in some cases to, to shed a kind of historical light in some of the uh, motivation that has driven AI research over the years. Um, so in, in part, this is uh, out, of, out of a recognition of my own limitations in understanding the relevant technology and not wanting to um, speak beyond uh, my own um, competencies. Uh, and and so I've, I've to some degree, you know, deferred to uh, other experts in the field that uh, have 
for me, become trustworthy guides to issues about artificial intelligence. And so I'm generally, because of that influence, skeptical about these claims. So with the Google AI expert, uh, or excuse me, um, engineer, I'm skeptical that that's what he found. And and others, they were very quick to say the same thing. Uh, what we've, there, there are some more interesting perspectives on um, on that story that now already kind of seems to be fading from, from our awareness. Uh, on the one hand, it, it raises the question of whether the Turing test is a, a useful test for determining whether we're dealing with some kind of sentient being or, or consciousness. I think there, there are questions about the intersection or, or the, the distinction between uh, intelli- intelligence, consciousness. Um, this researcher, I think, used the language of, of a soul. Um, there was a, a later tweet uh, thread that he um, wrote in which he addressed this question of, of why he thought that he was communicating with a sentient being. And his answer uh, was something like, well, I'm religious and, and this is what I um, understood to be happening. Uh, in fact, I think he says he is a priest uh, at one point in that thread. Uh, I don't know more than that. I don't know what tradition is working out of. I don't know what that means. Um, but it was interesting to me that he has this ostensibly theological perspective that led him to uh, conclude that, that this very sophisticated chatbot that is telling him that he has a soul, uh, in fact, has one, uh, simply because it claims to have one. Uh, wh- one use, I think it was Gary Marcus, who, or maybe it was another um, uh, engineer, compu- computing engineer that I follow on Twitter, who, who wondered wh- what would happen if I asked him, you know, what, you know, what does it feel like to be a bat? So it's kind of playing off of that old philosophy article from, uh, from the 70s. And, and also, I think the, the implication was that if you, if you lead the, the chatbot along, it's going to respond in the character of. Uh, and so we shouldn't read as much as this engineer read into it. Um, I, I, wonder the, I think the aims of um, developing these sophisticated um, tools that interact with us in, uh, in sort of ordinary language and can respond to us in this way... Um, I, I'm not. I'm not sure what all of the applications are that are in view, but certainly some of them are to, to generate a kind of ambient computing that um, we interface with orally uh, rather than than visually or, or through text. Um, it, it to power things like our personal assistants that you know may be sitting on our desks or kitchen countertops, um, and and it, I. I have a very loosely developed thoughts, so I'm going to just throw them out here just because you asked, and, and I'm, I think I might write about this um, in the near future. Uh, but, but it is, from one perspective, a way of creating a kind of um, omnipresent uh, and, and maybe even ostensibly omniscient, um, I don't know, agent that we can speak to and that can hear us. There, there are a lot of interesting studies about how people interact with things like Siri or Alexa, um, the kinds of questions they end up asking, uh, children in particular. There's some, there's some spiritual perspective there that I think is worth contemplating. In, in other words, that the, the more interesting thing for me is not whether uh, this AI program is, is sentient, which, which I, I don't think is the case, and I don't necessarily think we're... we're uh, ultimately heading in that direction, uh, but rather what role this kind of uh, agent will play in our lives, how how it may address or maybe, I don't know, um, kind of play off some latent tendency or, or desire to to be noted, to be spoken to, to, to have the world responsive to us in some way. Um, in other words, all that is to say that uh, it, it, it's an interesting God substitute, right? One way of understanding is that it, it can become an interesting God substitute um, in that it is this voice that we can sort of address at any moment and, um, and, and speak to and have it attentive to our solicitations, et cetera. So I don't know. I want to think about that more, uh, but I'm, I'm not at this present moment particularly concerned about the most um, dystopian sort of AI, sentient AI scenarios. Uh, but, you know, that's just me. A big part of my question here is how bad can it get and in, one direct- and in what direction? Um, and it seems to me that, you know, I don't think for sort of philosophical and theological reasons, I don't think that AI is going to become sentient because I don't think that that's sort of a coherent idea. I mean, 
I think there well might be demons that come through our computers. Um, but that's just me being very, you know, aggressively C.S. Lewisy. Um, but I do think that what what might happen, as well as this kind of question of like, how is this going to shape our our um, experience of life, uh, our experience of prayer, etc. Um, one other thing that it might do is shape our understanding of ourselves. Um, and so how might we start thinking about ourselves? How might a sort of average non-Christian, um, you know, vaguely materialist person start thinking about him or herself if he or she's convinced that the Turing test has been passed, point A, and that passing the Turing test is what it means to be a conscious self. Um, because obviously one of the many sort of ways in that people have had to something other than materialism in the past has been this kind of recognition, a, a sort of direct recognition of the uniqueness of um, the material soul. Um, like we, we know it when we, we, we know it, we see it, we know that we are experiencing it. We know that it's not like a material thing and that, it, and that we didn't make it. Um, I basically, one of my concerns is like, what if we just start deeply misunderstanding what's going on? Um, I don't think that's necessarily that different of a problem than idolatry. Um, but it just, it strikes me as something that might be good for Christians to be prepared for, even for their own, the sake of their own sanity. In other words, that we start understanding ourselves on, on the model of, of the kind of, um, uh, skills or aptitudes that we've assigned to to artificial intelligence, right? I, I mean, I, I think that there are patterns that have played out with other technologies and, and in slightly, maybe slightly different ways that, um, that speak to this, right? So I, I think even, for example, of uh, how we think about what, it, what, what human memory is, what the capacity for remembering is. And so the way I've thought about this is that we, you know, we, we use the word memory uh, to describe what a computer does when it stores information, say, right? And, but, but then we sort of reverse, and, and that's sort of a metaphorical, I, I, it seems to me, an analogical um, sort of use of the term. And so then the, the danger is that we reverse the metaphor and we begin to think about human memory uh, along the lines of what the computer can do, right? So that it's merely sort of storage and ret retrieval, right? It, it loses its moral dimensions. It, it loses um, the way, it, you know, the way that it, it intersects with our sense of self and our identity. In other words, it, sort of the depth and richness of what it is to remember as a person um, somehow gets diminished when we think of it merely in terms of the capacity to, to hold information in mind, right, to store information. And so similar pattern, you know, similarly, right, to, to ask ourselves, what, you know, what does it mean to be sentient? So, so one question with this Google engineer is, is that he, 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 seems to have believed this, right? I mean, if we take him at face value, he, he really does believe that he interacted with, with um, maybe even an, an ensouled creature uh, of some kind. And so he won't be the first or he won't be the last, right? So there is, I think, this question of whether, whether the AI is sentient or not, if people take it to be, um, you know, how then will they begin thinking about, about the self and about what it means to be, um, to be sentient and to be conscious? Uh, and so, yes, all that is just to kind of affirm that that's a that's an important question to keep before us, right? You know, we we create these tools, and then um, we see ourselves in them in some ways, and and what we see, um, you know, often changes the way that we understand what it is to be a person, what it is to be a human being, or or to have these capacities that we sort of assign to to the creature or to to the um, to the tool or the device or, or the program. Um, whether it's remembering or relating to others. Um, yeah, I think that's a very you know, useful angle of, um, of analysis, yeah. The other sort of similar thing that happens is that we talk about neurology, we talk about our own brains along the model of computer. Like I've, I find myself saying I'm, I'm not wired that way or something like that. Or um, right. I've even, I've tried to stop saying things like, oh my gosh, that, that gives me such a dopamine rush, which is something that I irritatingly picked up from some friend or something. There's a dopamine rush that like correlates with the experience of joy. But I think to describe yourself um, and to sort of get in the habit of describing yourself in terms of chemicals, as opposed to in terms of what we know ourselves on, you know, on for, like 
directly the way that you know we know anything directly to be, which is sort of immaterial selves um, in you know like body souls, but immaterial intellects. Um, I, I just think it's a bad habit of mind to to cultivate. Um, there was a tweet that uh, you had. There was something that you tweeted three weeks ago. Um, so now you are going to be brought up. <laughs> like, do you stand by what you tweeted three weeks ago? Um, yeah, right. You were responding to someone who said, um, "Within fifty years, technology will have advanced to such an extent that babies which exist in the metaverse are indistinct from those in the real world." And you wrote, "When I read something like this, I find it helpful to ask, what does a person already have to believe?" in order for this to sound like a remotely plausible or even desirable claim, which I just thought was a fantastic question on several levels because it gets to what this kind of technologizing, technologizing fantasy is doing, um, where people are coming from with it, and implicitly what we can do differently. Because, you know, as, as you kind of um, described your own life project, what I you know, what I want to do when, in thinking about this is like on an emergency level, help people to thrive because I think that there's a potential for extraordinary levels of not thriving while not even realizing you're not thriving. Um, that, that, that our technologies, um, you know, allow us basically a kind of muted suffering that we don't even recognize as suffering um, because we don't know what actual life is, feels like. Um, anymore. And so I wondered whether you had any sort of thoughts about that. I titled a post at, at newsletter post, the human built world is not built for humans, right? That we've, we've constructed a world in, and, and it functions at certain levels It generates certain, um, certainly material goods at certain levels for some people at some times. Um, but it, it tends to ignore certain immaterial needs that we may have in that post, I was thinking about Simone Weil uh, and Ivan Illich uh, together, and and so that yeah, we we inhabit a world that is not uh, built for who we are as embodied creatures, given the the limitations of of the human body, its needs, um, the scale at which we as human beings can fruitfully operate, uh, and so in in a lot of ways, I think we're we're asking human beings to function in a world that for in in which they are you know, from one perspective, sort of cogs in a machine, in a machi machinery that's not really ordered towards their good, right? It's ordered towards economic goods. Um, it's ordered towards uh, rationalization or efficiency, uh, but it's not ordered towards human goods. Uh, and, and then we're asked to operate in that world um, at its pace, at its scale. Um, and you know, Jacques Ellul was, you know, uh, very prescient about this even in the 1950s in, in writing about how then the the, the third layer of technique uh, in his sense that we add to this world that we've built around efficiency in the mid-20th century, uh, but that in many ways still, I think, well describes the world we live in today, uh, are human techniques. And these are sort of ways in which we find, we, we find that we need to compensate uh, for what we have eliminated or the ways in which we have structured the world that we now ask human beings to operate in. Uh, and so we find these these additional ways of compensating for um, for the fact that we have created a, uh, if if you like I know it's kind of a loaded term but it's sort of we've we've created a, an unnatural milieu for the human um, person and so I think we find ourselves doing that today in many ways uh, still um, and so yes that it's very easy not to thrive right in the language that you, you've used or not to flourish uh, because in many ways the the structure of our society. Uh, is is not conducive to human thriving, or right? it's conducive uh, to to human beings feeding a kind of techno-economic order uh, that has its own ends that are um, indifferent to our own well-being and our own flourishing, uh, and so finding ways to um, to not just uh, apply layers of of therapy to that that are doing essentially what it, what a little suggested, which is just um, keeping us healthy enough, sane enough to continue in that same milieu, uh, but rather to, to more radically at the root sort of reorder our lives as far as we can, our communities as far as we can, our churches as far as we can, uh, to, 
to redress the root problem uh, rather than simply continuously applying, um, again, compensatory, compensatory techniques, as a little put it, right? So, so this is, um, you know, I, I certainly don't have a 10-step program for how that works, right? Uh, but, but I think this is the, the task before us, is to, to imagine how we can create different households, different communities uh, within our limitations in order to, to not make um, not thriving, right, the default setting of, um, of our society. Yeah, um, I kind of was going to ask you for a 10-step program, actually. That would be really, really handy, actually. Yeah. This, would, this would make this po- podcast go. Yeah. <laughs> Um, we're, we're going to solve the technology yeah. thing, right? We just here. want, we, we want like action steps. I'm, but I'm, I'm kind of not kidding. I have not 10 steps for 41 questions that I'm working on now. So that's the first book I can't get out of the way. Um, but, um, I think you're, I think you're right. I, you know, I, I it's funny because I recently was formulating it to myself, not as touch grass, but, you know, dig your hand in dirt. Um, and, and there is some, I think value in, reducing the layers of mediation between us and the the external world, um, the world out there, as it, as it were. The last project that Von Illich undertook was, in his view, what was going to be a, a recovery of the senses, a recovery of, of sensual experience. And he began with sight, and that's about as far as he got. He has some interesting papers uh, from the last years of his life sort of tracing the cultural history of how human beings have understood what it means to see the world. Um, and, but behind the impetus behind this um, was this conviction that uh, we, we have lost, the, the body has been, this, these, this is how I'm, I'm putting it, uh, that the body has been decentered, uh, that human experience has been decentered from the body, right? That we, the body no longer forms the, um, the primary nexus of human experience. Uh, and so, Obviously, in, in some sense, um, we might think, well, that, well, that's impossible, right? We're always perceiving the world through our bodies. We can't step out of it, as it were. But I think the idea is that we, the, the layers of mediation that we have added uh, between the body and our experience, uh, so that, that even this wonderful thing that we're able to do, um, you know, separated by oceans and, um, and miles over land, and, and we're all three of us gathered on the screen, uh, which is which is fine, all right. I'm glad to be able to do it, uh, but it it is a different kind of experience than if we were all gathered in in one room together, right? Many of these trends are pre-internet. I think we we need to you know guard against the temptation to assume that a lot of of our problems are just internet-generated problems, right? A lot of these issues, I think, uh, stem from the, the earlier, certainly by the 19th century, when uh, we start inhabiting various modes of telepresence when we can become aware of things instantaneously that are happening at a, at a, at a great distance. And we begin acting beyond the, the reach of, of our bodies. And I'm not suggesting that this is necessarily inherently wrong, right? But uh, that at least the way in which we have pursued that, the way that that has developed, and, and certainly the way in which that has unfolded in a, in a digital context, uh, and maybe even especially exacerbated through the past two or three years um, during during this pandemic, it has been to disassociate our our sensual experience from our, our mental experience, to, to add layers of mediation and abstraction between us and the world. Um, whether that's you know sort of direct contact with the world, or um, and and I you know I, I want to guard against kind of romanticizing this or, or, or you know fetishizing it, but certain rhythms and patterns that. Um, are, are, I would say, perhaps more conducive to our well-being as human beings, as in flesh creatures, right? So, um, you know, I think of even sleep sleep patterns, right? There's uh, angst about not getting enough sleep. Um, we have, um, you know, any number of apps that you can download uh, or health trackers to help you sort of strategize uh, and, and find the right technique to get you the right amount of sleep, et cetera. Uh, but but part of that stems from the fact that we've created a world in which we are um, we can we can live with total disregards to the normal di- diurnal pattern of our of of earthly embodied earthly life. Right? Um, I it, this it was ex- sort of experientially driven home to me um, a couple of months ago when I was 
I, I, I'm fortunate enough to live in a slightly wooded area. It's still suburban, but it's kind of a slightly wooded um, part of of, of um, uh, Gainesville. And I was walking right around um, the time when sun begins to go down, and I, I experienced this sort of uh, you know palpable sense of things sort of dimming and sound stilling, uh, and and I realized all of a sudden my uh, my shoulders sort of relaxed, you know, I ca- was carrying all this stress. Um, and, and, you know, all of a sudden I, I felt a palpable sense of, of relief of my body relaxing. Uh, and it occurred to me that there's, there's something, you know, right about that, right. Um, that there's a natural progress to the day that, that helps my body kind of enter into a, a period of, of restfulness that, that is good for me. Uh, my normal pattern, of course, is just to go from broad daylight into you know, brightly lit rooms and then turn off the light at, at some too late hour um, because I've been you know, scrolling too, too long on Twitter uh, and then just say, well, you know, body, go to sleep and get your appropriate rest when, when nothing about that, um, about that day, about the structure of my life that day has, has been conducive to that. And that's just one example. I think we can multiply examples uh, of that sort. Um, but yeah, it's um, it's definitely, I think, a question of recovering the senses, recovering in body experience, rem- remembering the limitations of the body. Um, these are all certainly. Um, I, I hesitate to think of them as a as a game plan because what I want to resist is just bringing that same spirit of technique and mastery into this realm. Right? I I, I want to escape that rather than just repurposing that. Um, so I hesitate to speak in terms of. But we want 12, 12 rules for life. <laughs> I know, I we know, right, to, right. Give them to we, us. Yes, we, I, want, <laughs> we want a step <laughs> counter so that we can make sure to get our, our you know, exactly. number of steps in. Right, But right. I will say that, that so the, the founding editor of Plow, uh, Edward Arnold, uh, had this rule, a rule. Um, I think he broke it quite often, but he would basically start... Uh, every day, spending two hours uh, turning the manure pile, right? And uh, I know for myself, just blocking in some time for physical work uh, in a given week is is one of those things that's super helpful. Um, so while not making that a rule, it's a useful, not, not hack. <laughs> it's a useful way to just be more alive and enjoy your life more. That I agree, and I, I think sometimes I'm, I, I may be, you know, overly sensitive to that um, you know, desire to avoid any uh, appearance of technique, right? But it, there is a difference, right? There's, there are, there are. Uh, I've sometimes thought of opposing what I think I mean by technique to something like a practice, right? There are good practices, right? There are good um, patterns that we can establish. Often, I think it does come down to the spirit that we bring to the practice that you know maybe flips it from from a, a, a useful and wise practice into a technique, right? That we bring the spirit of mastery, the spirit of efficiency to that, um, rather than simply, I don't know, I'm not sure how exactly to, um, to phrase what the alternative rendering might be, right? But to, to inhabit a way of life that is, that is good without necessarily believing that, that we are now, have found the right method for good living. And if we simply apply these steps, it's going to pan out, right? One way to think about it, which my husband sort of um, uses as a, again, it's a heuristic, which might be too close to a technique. Um, But are you trying to make something, um, are you trying to like have a a medicine approach to something that ought to be food? Like, are you, are you trying to sort of um, like get in extra vitamins when you probably should just be eating normal food? No, that, that's a great way of putting it, right? Because that, that's right. You would take the vitamin in the spirit of technique and, or efficiency, right? Um, and it would, it would be bereft of enjoyment. Uh, and, and that, I think, is also part of, um, of the picture. Um, it was useful during the pandemic to see how many people reacted to digital isolation by, you know, famously starting to make sourdough bread. Um, I was, but, but it was a real thing, right? Like our local... Um, you know, hunting fishing store was completely sold out of fishing rods and and hunting gear for most of the COVID year. I was recently talking to a guy who runs a a, a 
charter fishing service off the Outer Banks of North Carolina. So they were, you know, they, they never had so much interest. So there is, uh, there is that kind of thing that snaps on for people past a certain point. Um, I've been wondering since then, is there a way of, of getting people to uh, realize that they can live that way even outside of pandemic times? Right. I, I mean, I, I, I think that's right. There, there was this moment, right? And it was, it was ever so brief where I think we, we, some, some people learned something about the kind of life they had been living or were forced to learn. And, and we had this taste of some alternatives. Um, and then for countless reasons, uh, that moment did, was not a moment of opportunity and, and simply passed. And I suppose some people have, you know, l- learned something for the long run from it. But, but I agree with you, right? It was, it was certainly, there was a kind of hope in the darkness uh, during that time that was, I think, a, a matter of what you're describing, of people rediscovering other ways of living uh, and finding that, it, that there was joy in it and satisfaction um, and, and even a sense of, um, of, of competency, right? I, I, I keep coming back to that because I, again, it's sort of an Illich, um, Albert Borgman thing where we, we just are consumers, uh, by default. Um, and we know how to do very little for ourselves. Um, the we here is very generic, of course. Um, and we, we lose the sense of purpose, a sense of satisfaction, a sense of well-being that comes from, from being, having, having just cultivating certain skills and, and capacities that we, um, you know, we don't, we don't have anymore. And it's fun, funny, even just talking about things like sourdough and fishing, right? It, it, it sounds like, you know, if only you take this granola crunchy recipe for your life, you, you know, you too, you know, will be, you know, on Walden Pond. And, and, and of course it doesn't work that way. Um, I found, I mean, I, I wonder too, if part of it isn't, you know, um, how kids are raised, uh, and then the effect of that on their parents, for me, having kids who wanted to be out in the physical world forced me to get out in the physical world. Uh, and yet the educational system that we've constructed, which Ivan Illich, of course, uh, would have happily pointed out actually prevents the kids for themselves from getting out to the natural world a lot of the time. So there's a whole complex of problems that can seem just sort of lifestyle on the outside, but actually uh, are really go from being the kind of decoration of life to really the content of people's childhoods, people's experiences, parents, sort of the most important uh, core aspects of what your life will have been spent doing, you know, when you're looking back at it at age 80, 90 years. The other sort of thing to think about is that we think of this in very will, will-bound and moralistic terms often. Like if we had enough self-discipline, we would, you know, become homesteaders. Um, and I think that that's not necessarily the best way to think about it, in part because we're social beings as well. And it's not bad that we kind of want to do what other people are doing. It's not bad to want to be on Twitter because other people are on Twitter because there is a there's a social aspect to our lives. Um, and it's also very difficult because, you know, we are, you know, creatures with not just a nature, but a second nature. And it's very difficult and ought to be very difficult for us to opt out of that when our culture is constructed around, um, you know, practice it like having a car, for example. It's, it's much harder to just opt out of having a car. And it doesn't really say something bad about you. And there's something good about that. There's something good about being enculturated to that degree. Um, but it does mean that, like, at least to a certain degree, we ought to be thinking, I think, in terms of creating different cultures for ourselves where it's not as hard to be human. Yeah, yes, right. I mean, I, I agreed. We um, the, the idea that we would um, opt out and, and not count and, and not find that... Um, in its own way, disordering or isolating, um, I think is, is a good, good point to make, right? We, we are social creatures. We need, so the, we, we tend to alternate between thinking about, uh, very large scale structures and, and, and what maybe government regulation can do to solve X, Y, or Z problem and what I as an individual can do, right? So we, we lose these, 
uh, mediating s structures, many of which have been sort of eroded uh, before we had any say in the matter. But um, but what can I do as a family? What can I do as a church community? Um, these they're, they're, or a neighborhood, right? There there are ways in which I think we can not just seek out the the lifestyle hacks, if you like, right? That I can implement in my own personal life, but but how can I? speak to my neighbor, um, you know, to my fellow church member, to my family members, how, how can we think together about what it might mean to create uh, properly social cultures, uh, microcultures, if, you know, if, if we can think of it that way, um, that bring people together, but then also are ordered in, in more humane ways, in ways that are more conducive to human flourishing. One um, example of that, families who are taking, like, the technology pledge with each other so like they're basically saying all of our kids are not going to have phones therefore our kids will have friends who don't have phones and also we are going to model not being hooked on our phones and not bringing them you know into our daily lives and it reminds me of kind of like um 90s purity culture but like maybe the maybe a good version and I'm not sure the 90s purity culture was that bad anyway. I wasn't raised evangelical, so I don't know. I've only heard about it secondhand. But um, it does seem to me to be like a potential, that's a thing that you could do. Right. Right, because it takes into account um, the, the the social costs that children incur when we tell them, no, you, you know, if you, you can't be on your, on your smartphone. You can't have a smartphone, right, if that's a choice we want to make. And everyone they know um, outside of their household is on uh, those devices and, and socializing through those networks, uh, then we're, we're obviously asking them to incur, a, you know, a very serious social cost. So to generate structures that, that support these commitments, um, I think it, that's a wonderful example of what that might look like. There's another practice that I kind of have done, and I've kind of done it since I was, I don't know, a teenager or something, which is more of a practice of gratitude. Um, I used to have this like little thing where I would think to myself, I would, it would be so horrible to live on the Starship Enterprise because you would be surrounded by this completely man-made sterile environment where there was no, like nothing was out of place. Everything was exactly like there was nothing organic, nothing spontaneous. There was no nature. Um, it would be absolutely awful. And I would start feeling that kind of like claustrophobia and like um, just real, like in, I have a pretty good imagination it shows sort of just like real intense almost physical dread and then I would go outside and I would like look up and like go to Central Park or something because I grew up in New York City or you know I would be up in Connecticut and I would just like go outside and go to the lake or something and it is it's like we're pretty far gone but we're actually not that far gone we're not brains in a vat you know we we do still live in a real world and in I think one of the things that's sort of healthy to do in thinking about, about this stuff when we can get really sort of doomy is just have a practice of gratitude like that, where you really connect with something that is pretty easy and physical and reminds you that you have a body and it's easy to get back in touch with that and reminds you of how much worse it could be. <laughs> you could have to live in a like space station. Right. Um, that uh, gratitude and, 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 a. uh, a, a so I often sort of boil down the, the very essence of everything that matters to me uh, with regards to te technology to, to two ways of being, right? One is, is this uh, mode of mastery and control and efficiency, um, which I think is the, the way that we are encouraged to, to be um, by our, our techno-social milieu. Uh, but the other is um, a kind of a posture of, of receptivity, right? Where, where we recognize that the world is not a field for us to um, to master, but but a gift to be received and and received with gratitude. I've quoted it many times, so I sometimes am hesitant to quote it again, right? But one of uh, Wendell Berry's Sabbath poems: "We live the given life, not the planned." And I think that really distills uh, these two these two ways of of being in the world. Um, and so I think gratitude is certainly, and even for that for those small moments, right? For those. Um, times where we are uh, caught off guard, uh, even. We, we may not even go out to seek these moments. We're caught off guard by them. Um, and, and we're reminded of 
the goodness of things that are beautiful, um, the value of things that are good, uh, and and they are, and that that in, you know sort of generates a, the the spirit of gratitude in us. I think that's yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on. All right, be well. Thank you. And now we'll be taking your questions and having a big think ourselves about what we've learned from these podcasts. So, Pete, um, this is the episode where we uh, take a step back, take a big sip of water, and think to ourselves about what we've been um, thinking about for the last couple of weeks here on the podcast and for the last couple of months as we put together this episode on Apocalypse. Um, how, how do you feel like your views of Apocalypse have changed since we kicked this off? One big thing I've been thinking about is that we all, to the extent we're Christians, or thinking within a Christian worldview, need to get a lot more comfortable thinking in an apocalyptic mode. And we've just spent, uh, I'll explain what I mean by that in a second, but we've spent a bunch of these podcasts talking about issues like technology just now, environment, war, birth rates, race and heritage, sort of the meaning of history, right? Big, big topics. What's interesting to me is that we need to get better at thinking in terms of what all these huge events that have big impacts on large numbers of people and also very individual impacts on specific people who we may or may not know. There, there are realities behind the news, right? There's something else going on that is unveiled, right? That original idea of apocalypse that we talked about in the first episode in this series. I've been reading just over the last couple of weeks as part of my work as an editor, a big monograph that a German theologian, a Catholic guy called Thomas Nauert, uh, wrote about my own community, the Bruderhof, and its experience under the Nazi regime, the Third Reich. The one little thing I wanna bring out from that book, which is excellent and will hopefully soon appear in English, it's been published in German already, is his observation of why it was that this small group of people were relatively fast at recognizing what was happening spiritually in the Nazi regime already before 1933 when Hitler came to power, um, at a time when so many Christians and I'm not saying this to kind of slap the Bruderhof in the back because I wasn't even around then, and I, I probably would have been as bad as anyone personally. But many Christians, including some who later went on to have very heroic careers as resistors to the Nazi regime, kind of didn't, didn't see through the mark of history at, at the time it was happening. And he, he put a lot of the weight of that in the ability of these people to think in terms of the book of Revelation, that there are spiritual forces behind history and that scripture actually tells us, you know, we're not to remain at the surface of, of phenomena, of news events, of what we read in our Twitter feed. Um, there's things going on beyond people. There's kinds of powers and principalities working their way through history. And as Christians, we're taught to see that as something that is both very, very serious, but also that there is a story that's gonna to come to an ultimately positive conclusion with the coming of the kingdom of God and that all things are working toward the good of those who love the Lord. And so very specifically, for instance, uh, going back to the 1930s, he brought out this issue of, do you give the Heil Hitler greeting or do you not? And if you look at it on the surface level, you could say, well, you know, this is an ultimately not so meaningful symbol and it's being demanded and we should just kind of do it and go along. Um, or you can say no, by using this Heil Hitler greeting, I am allying myself with spiritual forces that are at enmity with Christ, that are at enmity with God. And so even though it can seem in 1933, like a kind of embarrassing but socially necessary thing to go along with, no, I'm not gonna do it. I'm not gonna put incense on the altar. So that's what I mean by learning to think apocalyptically about things in ways that can be really clarifying 
That is one of the things I've been thinking about as we've talked about the Ukraine war, as we've talked about where is technology going, uh, as we talk about big issues like what does it mean that just as a species we're doing not a great job of leaving the planet to the next generation or even creating that next generation. So I don't know if that makes any sense to you, Susanna. What, what have you been thinking? Uh, it does. It actually makes a lot of sense to me. I, I guess I've been, um, the thing that I've, I, I guess, most been thinking about throughout the whole process of this, um, putting together this magazine and these podcasts is something about the way that the end of the world speaks backwards into our world, world as we're living in it now, which is not that different than what you were saying, but even in a much less kind of like historically pivotal or objectively historically significant way. The thing that I've been doing during this sort of putting together this issue of the, the magazine and these, this series of podcasts is I've been getting married. And that's in one way a very this worldly thing to do. You know, we're told that, you know, in the world to come, there's not going to be marriage. Um, but as sort of we've seen through various things, including Lyman Stone's um, discussion of family formation and birth rates, as we've seen through various other kinds of um, investigations in, in the process of putting this stuff together, there's a weird way in which apparently to do the good this worldly thing, you need an otherworldly or a um, apocalyptic perspective. Um, and I've it, it's just been an interesting kind of thing to notice in myself, one of the things that happens is that how I live with my husband now reflects my fidelity to Christ. Like there's this very, very clear and new sense of what's eternal is just completely interpenetrating what's, what's, what's immediate and what's present on, and what's temporal that I feel like, um, and I think this works with our hopes for what our you know what we do with our work as well um you know i have a kind of very tim kellerish concrete vision of what the new jerusalem is going to be like i think there's going to be a theater district but i also think that like if we do good work on these podcasts and with this magazine in some way those things are also going to be taken up into the new heavens and the new earth and so just this incredibly intense sense that i feel like i've been experiencing um particularly keenly in the last couple of months and weeks of what we do here has a has an eternal resonance and the four last things death judgment and heaven and hell um and the end of the world itself project their meaning back onto what we do now so none of it's trivial and that's actually an intensely hopeful and um joyful thought in a weird way more than a thought, a kind of experience. So that's what's going on with me. Well, I think you said better uh, and more specifically and concretely what I was trying to kind of sketch out. And with that, let's dive into the questions from our listeners. Uh, this is always a fun part where we kind of embarrass ourselves by attempting to tackle uh, problems and questions that are a little too big for us, but let's have a go at it anyway. All right. This is from Nicole Solomon, who's a reader. The question that she came up with was, I guess I wonder if we're being told to stop worrying about the future and focus simply on the moment we're in. Like, is that the message that you were trying to get across, Pete, with your editorial? So, you know, she was talking about sort of her various um, worries about, you know, COVID, about Ukraine, the war in Ukraine. Is the message that we should be taking away from all this, stop worrying about the future, focus on the moment you're in, um, and, or does that sort of cash out to plant a tree now and then go to meet the Messiah? What do you think about that question? I mean, I think that's, that's partly true. Uh, there's this attitude out there and probably social media hasn't helped, right? Where you can be worrying about everything. Um, you know, that, that old Monty Python song, I'm, I'm so worried about modern society, technology, right? Um, as if that were a virtue to spend, you know, the day, um, just in mental torment about the various bad things that are going on when you could and probably should be, you know, focused on your neighbor or your kids or doing something, you know, good with today and also enjoying God's creation uh, without carrying around those mental burdens, which help no one. So in, in that sense, yes. And summer is a great time to do that. 
in another sense, though, it does strike me that the whole book of Revelation is calling us to pay attention to what's happening in the world and to what God's plans for it are, not in some, you know, now I got to beat myself up kind of way, but in the sense that we're being invited, called on, forced to take a side in a cosmic conflict. And that, as you were just saying, Suzanne, in regard to marriage and family life and work, our decisions actually matter. We've kind of been given an instruction, a macro instruction um, by God to, you know, go be fruitful and multiply, to subdue the earth, whatever that means, to essentially, you know, the way that people have kind of understood that is to um, to cultivate the earth, to help it be more fruitful, to make culture, to make cities. Um, you know, we've got a lot to do. And, you know, the parable of the talents and a lot of other of Jesus's parables speak to the real importance of what it is that we're, um, you know, we're being called to do. We are actually living our real lives now. We're not, this is not a dress rehearsal. Um, again, like stop worrying about the future. The, the things that we really can't control, we shouldn't worry about. The things that we can control, I feel like I'm about to start doing the Reinhold Niebuhr serenity prayer. Um, but the things we can control, we are responsible for. Um, we're responsible at least for our own behavior towards um, towards those things. So um, I think we're not, we can't force outcomes, but I think that we are responsible for what we do with the time we have. Um, and that might mean that the time we are in is a really intense and consequential time. Um, you know, she, she, this, this lady was talking about um, the Ukrainian war and COVID. Um, other people who've written in talk, uh, talk a lot about the climate crisis. Um, I don't think that we have any guarantees of what's going to happen with sort of huge, gigantic, global scale problems. I think that we need to be as smart and as wise as we can. Um, I don't want to say follow the science because that's an incredibly annoying phrase and I don't know enough about what that would imply. But like, I don't think we can just say, well, you know, God would never let the climate get that bad. Um, or any whatever, like God would never let us actually have a nuclear war. I hope he wouldn't. Um, I don't know. I think we need to do what we can to stop it. Um, and know that whatever happens, you know, the times are in his hands. And, um, but also the times that, that we're in are the ones that we are called to live thoroughly and not kind of just skim along the edge of. That kind of ties into a question that I'd be interested in your thoughts on, Suzanne, and that came in uh, from a Twitter follower. Again, addressing the editorial at the beginning of the issue, but actually many of the things we've talked about in this podcast as well. Your editorial hits on several of the big fears, climate, possibly nuclear war, pandemics, etc. But at the granular level of daily life, there is so much disintegration happening that many people I know have commented recently that it feels like they are, quote, insane, unquote, to see what they are seeing. For example, a friend said this to me in the context of this video circling on Twitter, Twitter of a woman in a New York City subway saying, help me, and nobody does. It also seems to track with the behavior in his own neighborhood. There's also the observation that basic society is rapidly breaking down, and she links to a Twitter thread from Sebastian Milbank, uh, which I'll read. I just have the overwhelming feeling that I'm living at the end of history, says Sebastian Milbank. I can feel everything slowly deteriorating around me, and I don't know if what happens next is a collapse or just a grim, slow slide into a quietly dysfunctional society going nowhere, and which is worse. So the questioner goes on, I wonder if the latter is in some part a function of the former, with people's different types of existential fears being pitted against each other. So are social graces being ground down where people just don't help each other, as is already happening in the pandemic? And then that combines with the kind of fears that Sebastian Milbank's 
Twitter thread express. So my question is basically, what to do about this? How to repair the social fabric at this small but pervasive level, and at the larger level, how to help people find solidarity and compassion for each other in their mismatched existential fears, instead of finding their way to implicit enmity. So uh, a bunch of questions there. This kind of summarizes why we did this issue in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, uh, this this question gets at a lot of the kind of vibe that we were all feeling um, around about the time of the vibe shift, I believe, um, which was this sense of like, one way to put it is that left and right both have competing narratives of decline and horror and um, a future that's not going to be as good as the past and a future that's going to be really scary to live in. And left and right kind of tend to see the other side, at least to a certain degree, as the ones who are at fault in that. Um, and that, that kind of sense of apocalypse and also of having someone in your society who you can blame um, is really kind of striking. And it happens, you know, it is the case on both sides of, of this debate. And I think that the implication here is that sort of that sense of dueling apocalypses for whom you can blame dueling outgroups um, it does kind of lend itself, sort of promote this generalized um, massive sense of social breakdown and living at the end of history. And I think that, you know, one way to describe this is that, sorry to be political theological as I always am, but one way to describe this is that we're political animals and we have a kind of like, we're going around with a giant sense of not being able to be in a polity with each other. We're going around with a giant sense of their enemies within. Um, and those enemies are kind of connected to massive um, apocalyptic, you know, fears that I have. This is not to say that like, there's not right and wrong. And this is not to, you know, say that like all of these fears are ill-founded or, you know, you know, we should all just sort of like realize that we're, you know, playing for the same team. Although we are all members of the human race, we are all people who have been, you know, given to each other. Um, but I do think that there is something there that this, this, these dueling apocalypses that we experience and the sense of blame does contribute to an ongoing and rapid kind of deterioration of basic, a, a basic sense of safety with each other and courtesy. Um, and courage about the project of the future um, that we're doing together. And actually, one of the things that I thought was really interesting has been um, kind of jangling around in my head since we had the conversation with her and since I read her piece, and then since I met her in person in Oxford a couple of days ago, was Eleanor Parker's um, incredible piece about Archbishop Wolfstan, who lived around the year 1000. Um, he was the Archbishop of London in, I think, 996 or something. And then by 1014, he was the Archbishop of York. And what he was doing was he was trying to, like, he, he was also very clearly, like, this is a, apparently... I kind of didn't realize the degree to which this was true, but this, this sense of like jangling social disintegration and looming chaos and, and doom is apparently a common human experience. I don't think it means that it's like the same amount of that experience in every generation. I think it's pr probably cyclical a little bit, but certainly Wolfstein was talking about something that felt very familiar um, in this Sermo Lupi that um, Eleanor Parker, who is the author of this piece, The Sermon of the Wolf, um, discussed. And, you know, he kind of had a real reason to have this sense of doom and apocalypse. And I mean, there were Vikings. There were literal Vikings. And then, like, it actually happened. The Vikings won. And now, you know, he'd been trying to do this project with King Ethelred. Um, and then King Ethelred was dead and the new king, who was a Viking king called Canute, um, who might not have even been Christian or he might've been, we don't know. Like basically the worst had happened. And also now this Christian civilization, these Anglo-Saxons who had been like kind of at 
social disintegration with each other anyway, were now ruled by a Viking king, and there were a bunch of Vikings around who were barely Christian at all, if they were. And um, and yet, yet in the face of this, you know, Wolfstan pulled up his socks. I, I think he probably didn't because I'm almost 100% sure he did not wear socks. Um, but he got to work, and he carried on the work that he had been doing under um, Ethelred, and he carried it on with Canute. And he wrote a law code that helped this incredibly divided people, you know, basically a Christian society and a pagan society living side by side, not live side by side, but actually live with each other. And um, that law code, which was, you know, sort of take it, that law code, which um, he had been working on under Ethelred and then eventually worked on under Canute, was actually taken up after the... Um, 1066 conquering of England, which brought in William the Conqueror. So that law code that he wrote in the face of this incredibly unpromising and doom-ridden moment, um, you know, became the basis for, you know, very little of Anglo-Saxon society survived the Norman conquest. Um, but apparently this law code was one of the things that did. And that's actually an incredibly hopeful story to me, both because it seems like, all right, we've been here before. Um, and also because it seems like, all right, you can do something. You could actually do a project that will last. It's a fantastic article. And one of the things that the Archbishop Wolfstan talked about in the face of Viking terror was be a good spouse, be a good parent, be a good child to your parents, take care of those around you. So I think that gets to this questioner as well as his refusal to make a distinction uh, between outgroups, right? He kind of brought in the outgroup Vikings. And so I guess that's my at least partial answer to this question, how to repair the social fabric. As Christians, we need to refuse to think of other people as outgroups. And I think of that a lot because of of course, the U.S. Supreme Court made a big decision on abortion in June 2022, which will continue to have reverberations in our politics for a long time to come. I don't want to get into that right now, but one big piece of it is a refusal as Christians to not see anyone else, no matter how strongly we disagree with them, as fellow bearers of the image of God and, and to love them and to wish them well and to show that by helping them in the subway and to show that by living out a good family life, living out a good marriage, being a good friend. Um, those things sound very quotidian, but that's what Archbishop Wolfson told his Anglo-Saxon congregations. And that is one thing that actually takes quite a bit of work. And, uh, you know, to do that in one's local community, in one's city, at the state level, uh, there's a lot to be done for the good. And as, if we refuse to deny the, the divine spark in, in anyone, that will be much gained. Yeah, I mean, the thing that that piece really helped me with... Um kind of speaks to, so when I was reading Sebastian Milbank's thread, um, you know, the, the word that kind of sort of you, you're, is echoing in your ears is civility, kind of, but civility kind of has a bad rap these days. And I kind of get why, because it doesn't seem like it's enough. It seems like it's this sort of grit your teeth and be civil. Right. And a bit procedural. Remember to say please and thank you. Yeah. And the word that um, Dr. Parker talked about in her piece, which is the word that's basically like the thing that is at the center of society that Wolfstan tried to sort of instantiate in his legal code, was getrautha, which is, that's where we get our word truth from. It's also where we get our word troth from. So as in when you plight someone your troth, when you marry them. Um, and it means something like fidelity. It means something like integrity. But it's not just a personal quality, it's the ties that you have, um, the, the ties that there are between people in society and between different levels of society. So 
You can have Gatrautha with um, your spouse, with your friend, when you're not, you know, when you don't abandon or betray your friend. You can have Gatrautha with your liege lord if you, you know, fulfill your obligations to him. He can have Gatrautha with you. Um, and we're all called to have that kind of integrity and fidelity, that Gatrautha with God, um, who is the source of truth, who's the who's the one who has that fidelity in himself. So that word, rather than civility, is I think what we we need at this point. Um, and that, you know, with the help of the Holy Spirit, might be something that actually does begin to knit those um, frayed, extremely frayed social ties back together. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And for a lot more content like this, check out plow.com for the digital magazine. You can also subscribe. $32 a year will get you the print magazine, or for $99 a year, you can become a member of Plow. That membership carries a whole range of benefits, from free books to regular calls with the editors to invitations to special events and the occasional gift. Our members are one aspect of the broader Plow community, and we depend on them as a kind of extra advisory council. Go to plow.com subscribe to learn more. That's it for this series. In six weeks, tune back in as we kick off our next series linked to our upcoming issue on vows. And for the next six weeks, enjoy a weekly release of one of the Plow Reads. Those are audio versions of some of our most popular articles. Mm-hmm.